Hey everybody, welcome back to The Collective. We have another fantastic show for you planned out today. I'm very excited to get Alan Mack on the show. Very excited to have you here. Um, while I am very excited, you should be excited too. Like the show, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell, do all that good stuff. That way you get your email every morning whenever we go live. Now, I did... <laughs> I neglected to say Seb. Thank you so much for being on here, buddy. Hey, you're welcome, man. You're, you're, it, you're, you're here so regularly, it's almost like... Uh, <laughs> almost become like the back one of the background guys well, it like, should hey, be man. yeah yeah it's awesome though i do appreciate you jumping in on the conversation this is awesome um if y'all have any thoughts questions or comments by all means put them up in the comment section we will engage them directly and we will carry on with the convo any thoughts before we dive into the direct convo actually before i even get there my apologies alan you want to give us a quick 30 45 second rundown who you are where you come from and all sure that stuff all right, so I uh, grew up in uh, coastal New Hampshire, New England, and uh, right after high school, I uh, joined the Army as an aircraft mechanic, went off to uh, Korea, South Korea, my first assignment in Texas, and on to Germany for four years, and then flight school, right into Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then kind of worked my way around until I ended up in the Special Operations Aviation Regiment, the 160th SOAR at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And I finished out uh, 17 years there by going up to West Point, being the detachment commander, um, flying the general and the skydiving team and having a real good time. And uh, then I retired. And now I work here in New York, Orange County. It's about 50 miles north of New York City. And I'm the Deputy Commissioner of Emergency Services, and uh, I deal with emergency management. So storms, pandemics, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's me. Dang. Dang. So you haven't done much at all, just kind of. A bit of an No. no. Just kind of <laughs> interesting thing, right? <laughs> uh, well, so we've been talking about playing the game for this last week or so. And I really want to get your point, on, point of view on this in general is to, like, when you hear the, the concept playing the game, and I know you've watched the last couple of days, so you have an idea of where, where we've been talking. What are your thoughts initially on playing the game? Playing the game. Well, um, I got to say, I think for me, playing the game in any sort of life or event is to do it with a good attitude. You know, uh, even when things aren't looking good, if you can maintain that good attitude and, and, a, and a good work ethic, you know, you can get through just about anything. Um, now, Seb, do you have anything to add on any of that? No? No, I agree. Oh, there we go. Boom. Okay, let's all call the show, everybody. <laughs> you got the <laughs> See perfect you definition. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, you got anything? <laughs> no, you're all good? All right. Well, then, let's get into some of the things that we were talking about the other day here, because <clears throat> I did want to dive into a little bit. Now, you've been, with the, with the 160th at least, did you find that the the game changed? Like, when you went from Reg Army as a pilot, and you went into 160th, did you have to shift your own style of playing the game? Did you have to like completely switch to a different ball game or was it just like a small deviation? No, it was uh, really, if you just keep with that, that simple edict, you know, good attitude, good work ethic that works in either any level of, of organization and moving from the conventional army into special operations. Uh, you know, it was like going from a, a minor league to a major league um, sporting event. You know, so you had to kind of up your, up your intensity a little bit, maybe. But uh, if you, you know, just keep working at it and and smiling when you can, and everybody will help you. <laughs> I always wonder uh, too. 
Yeah, go ahead, Sean. Maybe just real quick for the audience, uh, we all know what the 160th is. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps others don't. So maybe we could just talk about that for a sec. For sure. Yeah. So the, the 160th was um, invented, if you will, after the failed Iranian hostage rescue in uh, 1980. So, you know, the helicopters went in and crashed uh, into a C-130 refueler in the middle of the desert, a place called Desert One. And it was Operation Eagle Claw. Big failure. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the president. And uh, what they did do was decide to build a ground-up organization, the Joint Special Operations Command. And they created their own aviation asset, which they didn't have at the time. So they created this uh, unit out of what was called Task Force 158 and Task Force 159. And they formed it into Task Force 160 or the 160th. Special Operations Aviation Group, and then that became a regiment later on. Mm -hmm. So that unit has, it's an all-volunteer unit. You, you can't just get direct assigned. It's, um, you've got to be selected. So they've got a whole selection process. And they have three different types of airframes. You've got uh, what we call the Little Birds, the AH-6 and MH-6. They're like the uh, helicopters on Magnum PI uh, One version is armed, and one version is assault. It has like... Uh, planks, aluminum planks on the side the guys will just sit on. You see it in the movie Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that takes you to the Blackhawks. There's two versions there, an armed version called the DAP or Direct Action Penetrator and a regular assault version. And then you have MH-47 Chinooks. And an MH is different than a CH in that CH designates cargo helicopter 47, which is what the conventional forces use. And then the MH-47s that the 160th uses are Especially modified with, you know, terrain following radar and some other fancy black boxes that help them do some things. And you've seen them in such things as, um, you know, the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie 12 Strong with Chris Hemsworth, who played Thor, uh, that depicted my first mission in Afghanistan. And in the movie, you know, he was going to play me. But uh, I thought maybe he wasn't uh, tall enough. Actually, he's about he's about that much taller than me. But uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we do. You know, uh, you could do airliner takedowns with the little birds, train takedowns, uh, cruise liners. Uh, you know, for hostage rescue, that kind of stuff. So I have a question on that then, and this is kind of a general statement. But what was your? Did you get to fly all of the different aircrafts, or was it? Do you specialize in the one? No, I specialized in one. It was the MH-47. I'm going to do a, a shameless plug here. I'll show you what it is, but it, it also... So this is my book <laughs> that I wrote, but this is the uh, MH-47. Mm -hmm. You see it's got a, uh, a re air refueling probe right here. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, take gas in the air off a C-130. And then right over here, the screen's backwards, so it's <laughs> the mirror effect. Uh, there's a multi-mode radar for terrain following. And uh, so you can fly in the mountains without being able to see out the windows because of bad weather and the, the radar will just make the aircraft go up and down, uh, in between the mountains. Got to trust the equipment. <laughs> yeah. <Trust. laughs> There's all kinds of stories with trust that equipment. <laughs> oh God. So uh, <clears throat> my question on it initially was, um, what was your, what was your favorite portion of the, of flying? Did you like the lower to the ground stuff? Do you like cargoing people around? Do you like, like what, what was your favorite type of flying i guess i should ask yeah my favorite type of flying is down low mm -hmm. uh it's all it's just a lot of fun 
Um, although, you know, in combat, that's not fun. It's maybe a little exhilarating, but the idea behind flying low is to mask your, uh, yourself from enemy, enemy guns, you know, or missiles. And I've had the, uh, the, the fun of having surface air missiles fired at me, you know, the heat seekers and the, you know, the flares poop out and uh, decoy the, decoy the flares. I've had some heavy caliber, you know, 23 millimeter, a lot of that, a lot of that shot at me. And I actually got shot down in uh, 2000, early 2002 uh, with an RPG and a bunch of machine gun fire. And uh, that was an interesting there. But the, uh, the most fun really, or the most enjoyable was um, rescuing people. I liked doing hostage rescue or uh, what we call CASAVAC. So if uh, the assaulters get shot on an objective, you know, they're calling for someone to come get them. And it's not a medevac aircraft. It's one of us. And we, it's called CASAVAC, casualty evacuation. And we have our own medics on board. And uh, sometimes we would have a, a four-member SRT, sur uh, surgical resuscitation team, uh, which consisted of four high-speed, uh, you know, emergency doctors. Uh, I really enjoyed that. You know, and if it wasn't that, then it was... Uh, taking down bad guys. And I, I don't mean the, the low level pipe swingers, but the, uh, you know, the Al Qaeda, uh, ISIS, you know, those kind of guys coming in and getting the boss, you know, that was a lot of fun, you know, to land next to a building with a bunch of, uh, you know, angry Navy seals or, uh, Delta operators. It was a lot of fun. People that look like Sean and Seb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be, uh, that sounds amazing. You guys got any questions for Alan at all? Yeah, can we talk about this for the rest of the episode? Let's or, do it, uh, man. 100%. <laughs> I am a massive 160th um, fan, and I, I watch West Point's graduation, and I've been, I've been, I've, I've read, of course, Mike Duran's account of Black Hawk Down, and uh, you know a few of the follow-ups, like uh, in in the Company of Heroes, and a, a bunch of those other books, and and I had a I, I had the chance of of sort of collaborating with with some of the some of the guys over the years and just kind of have conversation mostly nothing dynamic and sexy but mostly just ex information exchange and you know it's 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 i think that alan comes across as being obviously like every 160th pilot i've ever met which is very self-deprecating and very low-balling of what's going on there it is believed to be one one if not the best and highly you know highly capable aviation unit in the world and there are reasons for that and those reasons are if you can't pass you're gone and and, and those benchmarks are incessant you know so it's just very very impressive career i love i love it did you ever uh, get a chance to meet or um, or work with uh, Lindsay Danielak, by any chance? Uh, I don't know the name, but you know, uh, if it was overseas, uh, I you know I found especially in the early years, uh, guys went under alias, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it would be very difficult. You know, I would meet these guys for the first time. I'm Bob, you know, I'm Bob, and I'm working with Bob for a year, and then like. Five years later, I run into Bob, except his name is George. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, you're Bob. <laughs> like, no, I'm George. <laughs> That's hilarious. She would obviously should be should be notable. I mean, she was one of the first uh, females, I guess, to make it to the 160th, and she's still there today, as far as I know. She oh, was a West, okay. West Point graduate. She, yeah, I, I think she was on a little she was on a little bird. Yeah, they did that just after I left. So I left there gotcha. in uh, late 2012. And the women came on board like that next year. Roger. The, <clears throat> that interesting thought here. Sean, did you ever get to work with the 160th? 
No, I didn't. But we had our own guys up here in Canada, and uh, they weren't bad either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was wondering, I was talking about the uh, the 427, and I, I wasn't sure if they stood up for uh, quite a while, because we didn't hear about them until halfway through Afghanistan, so I wasn't quite sure if we'd actually been using them or not. Now, the... Um, what... I just lost my train of thought completely. Apologies. Um, I'm going to come back to you, Alan, here really quickly. But mm-hmm. the the missions that you've done and all the different things, I mean, you've been in for, you said it was like 30-some-odd years. You've been through the ringer a couple of times, I imagine, and especially Afghanistan flying with the, uh, the, the crazy boys is going to be interesting, to say the least. But what do you think some of the lessons are that you can bring forward into everyday life from flying and flying those particular styles of missions? You know, I got to tell you, the the most important aspect of any of that for me was the people. And if you just, you know, your coworkers, your family, your friends, you know, that kind of stuff, if you can keep them uh, in, a, in, a, in a nice tight circle and, and, and just have faith in, in those friendships uh, and relationships, uh, everything seems to work out. Even when things are the darkest, you know, that's kind of when you need that help, you know, you might not want it, but uh, it's it's very important. And so when I left the military, I thought, you know, one of the hardest things in transitioning out would be, you know, uh, most of my friends, when they retire, they go fly, you know, for the state police, air ambulance, uh, you know, corporate, whatever. And I had job offers for all the same things. And the problem with that is you you go from this cohesive unit that's doing some very, very interesting and important things. And now, though you might be doing important things, you might be putting out uh, wildfires or, or, you know, pulling, you know, transferring a heart from one hospital to another. All very important. But you, you lose that cohesiveness and that camaraderie of dealing with people. So it's kind of funny that I ended up in emergency services because now I deal with, you know, police officers, firefighters, EMS and the FEMA people, and it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's it's a little different, but it's it's the same dynamic. Everybody's there for the right reason, and uh, I really enjoy that, you know. And so, so taking those relationships from doing missions to you know working a, a flood, you know, it's all kind of the same stuff. Yeah, Seb, you've uh, you've transitioned out from not only from the RCMP but the uh, real uh, from the RCMP, but I actually have talked to Sean and you about this a couple of times in terms of people leaving the job, but never really leaving the job, if you know what I mean, right? And to be able to transfer not only those relationships, but still step back from the actual physical side of it. You, you know what I'm talking about here? That, mm-hmm. and I'm just, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Let me put it that way. Like, like the hands-on type stuff, right? Where you're yeah. moving into a different role. And I think... You know, what's, what's really interesting with that is as you're negotiating whatever transition you're negotiating, uh, you're likely to subconsciously migrate towards what you know and what you're comfortable with. And it's it's calling your name at every opportunity. Something will come up and you'll be like, oh, I could do, you know, this, which is only policing in disguise or military life in disguise, you know. And and I think that it's it's a critical piece of the transition to realize that your comfort zone is going to be calling your name. And we know that, you know, comfort is where the growth goes to die. So if you if you want it safe, but you want to 
you you know you want to action a plan that you're very familiar with that's very comfortable it's always there and you can i think the challenge is to stick to your guns so to speak and say i want to do something different you know i was there for 20 years i was there for 30 in alan's case and uh you know been there done that how do i how do i now focus on developing a different skill set while bringing the stuff that I acquired over the years with me because that never leaves you and there's a lot of crossovers and a lot of, you know, obviously this will will cross over to emergency operation like nobody's business. But at the end of the day, you have to have the ability to 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 set your sights on something else. And, 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 and this is my opinion anyways, because otherwise you'll consistently be called back in that loop. That's very easy to do. Alan, have you noticed that from some of your compatriots that that has happened at all? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, a lot of the guys will fall back, you know. So flying, you know, an uh, air ambulance or putting out a fire from the from the air is is fun. But like I said, they'll miss that 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 being with people and the in a sense of importance. And they'll move off into these contractor jobs uh, overseas, you know, the OGA uh, you know, CIA kind of stuff. And, um, you know, interestingly, so I have, uh, two, two sons from my first marriage. One was a crew chief in the one sixtieth, uh, and on MH 47s. And he got out after eight years and now he talk about doing something different. He went back to school and, uh, now he, he works with a laboratory at, uh, right. Patterson field in, in Ohio doing working with, I always joke with lasers and uh, it's just so different. And now I've got another son who's a F-18 Wizzo in the Navy. So that's a backseater, a weapon systems operator. And he's coming up on his, you know, 17, 18 years. And I'm telling him, get out. As soon as you get 20, go. Don't let the, you know, don't be scared. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, the airlines don't do navigators anymore. And, but it's these, it's these skills that you acquire over all this time, you know, these, we call them soft skills, right? You know, the, the ability to be on time, you know, the ability to stay calm under pressure, you know, I mean, I, one of my very first incidents here in Orange County was a big snowstorm where a bunch of cars were stuck on the interstate for, uh, right at, at, at dinner, you know, and the storm wasn't supposed to happen and it did, we got 24 inches and these people were stuck out there with no gasoline in their car and, you know, uh, it was cold and, uh, you know, I coordinated the effort to get the state police out there with snowmobiles and bring water and check on people and bring them in if they needed to come in. And one of my employees said, how can you stay so calm? And I said, cause no one's shooting at me. You know, <laughs> we've got time here. <laughs> it's just a snowstorm, but, uh, all these skills transfer over, whether you're a, a supermarket manager, you know, and you've, you've got to keep the deli rolling, you know, or, uh, you know something more exciting. It doesn't matter. It, these skills of leadership uh, and staying you know, calm, it, it, it takes me back to that good attitude, good work ethic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could do that in anything you're, uh, you're going to do well. It's funny too, because I was, <clears throat> I was just thinking that you probably have the most level audio ish audio track out of anybody we've had on before. Is that is <laughs> too monotone? No, <laughs> well, no, no, not monotone. It's, it's just the fact that like, um, any pilot I've known, anybody that spends a lot of time on the radio, like the, you're so used to speaking succinctly on that kind of, you don't let your, uh, you don't let, like, you don't peak or drop your, drop your, uh, your tonality. There we go. My brain is not working today. I apologize, everybody. <laughs> I don't know why my brain's not working. Um, not, not pilot uh, quality. Uh, I got a question for you, Alan. So, yeah. um, 
you talked about uh, moving careers for folks out there and uh, we're right now talking about chasing the career rather than chasing the type of people that you want to work with and I feel that that's the kind of the secret to things when you're leaving a high-speed low-drag career in the military or from wherever don't chase the next career, the next career, the next career without thought of the kind of people that you're going to work with in that career. So for me, I've done several careers, but my key to success, this is just Sean's idea, is go in the direction where good people are going to be so that you can learn from them. I need to be around high quality people. I need to be high speed, low drag surrounded. So it doesn't matter what the industry is. For me, it's about looking into the future and identifying there's going to be good people there that I can learn from. You know, it, interestingly, along with that, uh, about a year ago, I did, of all things, a book signing at a, a Market Basket. A Market Basket is a supermarket up in the New Hampshire, Maine area. And it was just funny because a, a friend of mine was uh, one of the assistant managers. And he's like, hey, could you could you bring some books over and we'll, we'll do some signing for the employees? I'm like, uh, sure. If you can't come to the book signing, I'll come to you kind of thing. But what was so amazing about it is I'd never seen a supermarket. And it's a big supermarket and uh, super clean, well lit, well run, you know, well managed. And the people that came up and talked to me from the different departments were almost all of them. You, like you think of a supermarket as, you know, uh, people who maybe they're you know in high school or working their way through college. These were all people who had uh essentially retired there were teachers and firefighters and you know businessmen that were like i was bored so i uh i took this job but they brought with them the skills and the attitude that we're talking about and it, it was really cool to see you know pleasant work environment have <laughs> you got any thoughts on that yeah no i couldn't agree more i mean we need to be seeking who's not only challenging themselves to do better but challenges us to do better uh, as a byproduct and 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 i think you know the collaboration piece uh, really really to me stands out as something that i really missed out on being institutionalized for you know a couple decades and because we do collaborate yes and and all this good stuff but it's not the same you know when you 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 have task forced upon you whereas if you're going into a, a direction where everything you do are things that you want to do um you know you can establish priorities and and do all this good stuff i mean for me it's been it's been very very good to surround yourself with the people that remind you of your old team even though the mission's different and you get to realize that the majority of people that excel at things in whatever field of endeavors are all the same they, they're very similar they're all the same people and so you know sometimes you can you can pick just by way of the by by way of how somebody sort of um produce themselves in whatever field they're in you know i was at i don't know if i told this story before but a couple of weeks ago i was at subway and i'm sitting there and there's a giant lineup it's there's probably 20 people in line and there's one person working behind the counter this this lady this young lady probably 22 23 years old and she is killing it i have never seen anything like it she's got five subs at the same time there isn't a single waste of movement between you know going left to right and picking something up and going back to picking up because you walked by and you didn't you know grab it at the time everything she did was beyond calculated and i watched her for almost 10 minutes negotiate this entire crowd until there was nobody left in that store and every nobody really waited 
And I remember thinking like, holy, how do you teach that? And where, what do you do with that when somebody has that kind of sort of fundamental, you know, baseline, you can do anything. So it's really interesting when you start paying, when you start sort of paying attention to people's performance and how they play the game, you're able to, you're able to, you know, capture um, incredible people in all those different fields. And, and, and those are the people that you're going to be lining up with if you're, if you're doing it correctly. That's an interesting point too. I've, I've always seen, and I've talked to many people about this, you know, people say, oh, there's, there's something to working in a good kitchen or there's something to be working with a good crew. There's something, there's that, uh, you know, I think we talked about this a couple of times, synergy, but there's like yeah. the synergy of it, right? The, everything flows together. People don't need to talk to one another. Things just happen the way they're supposed to happen. And it's an interesting question of how do you teach that to somebody? And <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm going to come to you, Alan, on this one. If you're, you said you were working with West Point and um, you're training others. I mean, imagine as a senior pilot, you'd be training pilots as well. Is that something that you are actively teaching or is it just a uh, kind of a culture thing where people just assimilate it as they come in? It's both, really. The uh, The culture is what it is, right? I mean, you're, you're coming into this knowing... Remember, this is an all-volunteer organization that I was in. And so you would have guys come in there sometimes for the wrong reason. And you could pick that out right in the beginning in selection. And it's like, you know, this guy doesn't seem impressed with the aircraft. He doesn't seem, you know, to, to really have the right personality. And then, you know, you kind of weed them out through the, through the selection process. Once you get a decent set of employees, if you will, you know, if you can be, if you can be picky enough with who you hire, then it's training. You know, it's, uh, you know, what we call stress inoculation, you know, put people under stress, you know, in training so that when they're doing the real thing. So when you're working the subway counter by yourself, you know, you can, you know, you get it all done, you know, without uh, getting mayonnaise all over the floor. It's interesting. Sean, did you see the same thing when you were up at the hill? Well, uh, what I was thinking of was not so much up at the hill, but literally any career that I've been in. So the one that came to mind since I just finished off my coffee is I used to own a coffee shop for a couple of years and it was a busy coffee shop. I'd have like 10, 12 staff behind the counter, most of them girls, and it was busy, man. And you had to learn your way to navigate uh, through that. It, it was busy behind the counter. And so there was no room for error because my culture was high expectation culture. I was running my coffee shop like a tier one coffee shop. And so everyone on my staff knew what was up. And by the way, uh, to further the point, my job as the team commander was to identify people who are really good at their job and then promote them up in the job so that they're now running the cafe rather than me running the cafe. And that's what cultures do. Good cultures identify people who are in the game and want to progress in the game. And so I'm going to facilitate that movement upwards. It, so it doesn't matter whether it's in Tier 1 out in Ottawa or it's the 160th down in the U.S., it's all around us in any industry, in any business. Uh, you set the culture, and then you have everyone meet those expectations. Now, a question on that is the, is there a point where it becomes uh, ineffectual? 
right? Can you put the standard so high that it's just like, well, no one can attain these? Or is it a, a question of gauging as, as you go, like just giving them responsibility and then letting them either hang themselves or not, and then giving them more? And then whether they hang themselves or not, in order to in order to build that kind of culture from from scratch. Yeah, for uh, sure Sean? there is. I mean, I yeah there is for sure. I think in any industry, you've got to hold people accountable, and you've got to make them stretch their wings to some degree. But I don't need to make the comparison between running a tier one coffee shop and running a tier three coffee shop. I'll just say my coffee shop versus my own kitchen at home. Like in my kitchen, I prefer everyone to be out of the kitchen because they can't work in the kitchen like I like to work in the kitchen. And so they're in the way. They don't know how to move. They don't know how to flow like a well-run coffee shop. And so in my own house, it's not my job to teach my family how to seamlessly move at a tier one coffee shop pace. That's what I do in the coffee shop when I owned it. So there's a time and place for everything. And I think that the real trick is not to look at the world view as everyone has to operate like a tier one -er. What you've got to do is you've got to move through the world understanding how they're operating, synchronize with that, and then somehow t try to raise the level up from level 19 to level 18 or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. Alan, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree exactly what he said. and. You know, sometimes one of the things that I have to deal with nowadays is uh, whether it was when I was at West Point or now in emergency services is talent management, right? So I've got to find out who's good at what. And then I'm sort of the maestro and, you know, uh, running the symphony here is I'm trying to put the right person, you know, that, you know, maybe they've all, you know, you, you'd like to think they all have the same skills, but they don't. You know, I have one guy with a, uh, a photographic memory and he can he can do money with the with the fema you know for disasters and things like that nobody else can do it like him so i set him off to the side and then you know the other people might run the emergency operations center better you know very very coordinated but if i let them get in the triangle of the kitchen if you will right that flow they'll they'll interfere with each other and we won't get anything done so you know i've got to you know as a leader just sort of keep them out of each other's way and put them at their strength, you know, and it's luckily for me, you know, all their strengths fit like a nice little puzzle. So you may not always get that. And I don't know what you do in that case, but you know, keep working out, I guess. Run with it. Yeah. Seb, you got any thoughts on it? Yeah. Essentially find a, find a person for the job rather than finding a job for a person. Cause if you're finding a job for a person, you know, you're looking at anything that comes down the pipe that needs doing and, and you give it to somebody and that somebody may not be the person that you need uh, in this in this specific instance. I just, um, you know, sometimes it's tough because it, it's it's a bit harder to do it that way. It's a bit it's a bit harder. It takes a little bit more work and sometimes it takes a little bit more time and dedication and commitment to, to really finding that person. And sometimes that means that somebody has to bridge the gap until then which is good because eventually that person can become your sort of redundancy. So now you have one person that's excellent at something, but now you have to bring somebody else along because things happen and people get hurt and people get sick and, you know, so it's important to have the ability to, to bring somebody up and elevate everybody's game. So if you, you know, so that you have a bunch of those people that are capable. 
one of the one of the I would say organizational downfall of some of the organizations I work with often was that the lack of redundancy or the lack of of contingency in the event that you know the the go-to person or the subject matter expert was unable to continue fulfilling their duties and next thing you knew guess what nobody's ever thought of that you know like so so now you're you're really you're regressing or taking you know some some catastrophic steps back sometimes and so yeah you know it's important to recognize that it's also important to recognize that even if somebody you know you perceive somebody as perhaps taking a little bit more that they can chew it's probably a better prospect than to undertask them and you'll see that people tend to elevate their games if they're being responsibilized with something and if they believe that you believe in them and so the way this is communicated is 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 critically important for them to buy into this so that they may actually perform at the level at which you know they're capable of. Now, I'm wondering about the, because uh, obviously there's always going to be a line between having the right person in the right job to having people in the job, right? Like sometimes you just need bodies. And so the, I guess really what I'm wondering is how do you evolve? How do you, how do you get people to buy in to play that game to understand like, you know, you might not be the right person for this, but you're the person that's doing it. <laughs> is there is there a way to get someone to into that mindset, or do you think it is just you, you gotta, gotta grit your teeth and run through it? I'm gonna Seb. What do you think? I'm gonna come to you first, and then we'll go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, just like anything we do in in any in any sort of field, it, you have to have a, a sort of a, a, collaborate, a co collaborative approach with the person, right? Like nobody is being tasked with something without explanation. And if, if they are and just do this because I told you so, you're going to get what you might expect from these types of workers. They'll, they'll do nothing and they'll stare at the wall until you come and turn him over and ask him to walk that way to do something else. And that's not what you want. And I think there's an appeal there in thinking, you know, my word is gospel and all I have to do is to snap my fingers and these people are snapping at attention. But that actually isn't the type of per uh, people you want around you. You want people that can think, people that can problem solve on their own. If, if they can't reach you on the phone or send you a text or do X, Y, and Z, they can come up with some solutions, they're action-based, solution-based, problem-solving-based, you know, those types of things. And the only way to have that is for you not to be micromanaging, is for you not to be breathing down their necks, and for you to be looking at everything they do and questioning absolutely everything. So you have to be very selective in how you communicate with them. But again, it goes with, you know, building a relationship with your crew. That's important. That's a critically important piece. Like you have to build relationship with your crew so that you can have the, the tough, the tough conversations and the good conversations and all of them. But if that's the case and somebody is temporarily put into a position, you know, understanding what value it brings to them as a person in terms of growth development and future, you know, opportunities or even for them to take one for the team. And explain that we're, we're, we're very aware that we're, you know, bringing you in to do something that you're perhaps you feel you're, you may not be as qualified as the next person to do. But guess what? You know, here's are some of the benefits. And, 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 and I think too often we think that having a regular conversation and grounded in, in sort of care and compassion and, and, and also wanting to do well uh, generally can stand the test, you know. But if we if we don't. And if we don't have the ability to do that, it can be problematic. Yeah. Alan, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the other things that 
you got to consider probably is the ebb and the flow of the capacity of whatever you're doing, right? The, the team or the organization. So when you're firing, you know, like a car firing in all cylinders, you know, an, an organization may be able to do, do fantastic things, right? And then you may end up, you know, like you said, you know, somebody gets hurt, right? Uh, or has a baby and is out from maternity leave. And the person, either you replace that person temporarily or that person never comes back, uh, you may still get the same job done, but it may not be at the same efficiency level or the same, you know, throughput or output. And you just have to manage those expectations until you can regain the, the initiative. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's no sense getting upset about it. It just, it is what it is. Now deal with it. 100%. Sean, you got any points to add? Well, I think there is a time where you can be um, irritated or annoyed with the situation. It's when, uh, and I'm not speaking to Alan, obviously I'm speaking to everyone, <laughs> is when uh, we don't do our job. And what do I mean by that? So I'll uh, create a thought construct. Uh, consider when uh, a, an orchestra uh, has a orchestral conductor, as uh, was discussed. Obviously, the conductor is responsible for shaping the beautiful sound that we're about to uh, sit down and listen to. Uh, and that's all individual players coming together and be led by a conductor. That conductor um, started considering the profession of being a conductor for many, many years before they, he or she was standing in front of the orchestra. But... I'm going back to when I was about 10 years old, I started playing piano and then I played a boatload of instruments uh, after the fact. And at no point in that early process did someone say to me, to young Sean, hey Sean, you know what you should think about? You should think about one day you might be a conductor and you should think about what that might mean. And you should think about what you would wanna do in order to achieve that sort of uh, position so that you can understand the totality of the uh, event so that you can understand not just your job but everyone's job so that you can understand if that person doesn't show up for their job how you're going to move resources over to cover that gap and etc what we're talking about is creating a leader at an early age through the trajectory that is easily understood for them as they pick up their first clarinet and think i think i'd like to try clarinet and so um it's for us as leaders, I'll say loosely, to identify these opportunities for anyone who's within our sphere of influence at a very early phase in their career to start injecting these ideas to look to the future when you're going to be a leader in your particular profession or hobby or trajectory and start learning how to do it better now. Start paying attention to people who are conducting and what makes them special. Even though you just got your clarinet on day one, these are things you need to start thinking about. Seb, mm -hmm. you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, incredibly accurate. And, and, and also what you're looking at down the road, if you're doing it correctly, and if you're doing it that way, you're, the likelihood that your people are going to spend their, their time, you know, sort of bitching at management or who's not doing what for who or why or or whatever is once you've been put in a position and you are now responsible to see it through you understand how difficult it is to control you know all those those elements that have to come together and to 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 make sure that that you know 
I hope that that sa- that music, that beautiful music, doesn't come off as, you know, um, what's the word, cacophonic or whatever. You know, it's just it's just very it's just very um, it's just very important to do that so that the people around start thinking outside of their own individual roles and tasks. And so having the ability as, as somebody that's growing up either through the ranks or coming, you know, just being a leader by way of being more experienced and having to mentor people or whatever the case may be, you want to make sure that they have an exposure to the job either above or two above them, you know, so they, so they, it bridged, it bridges that gap. It's like, it's teaching them how challenging it is. It's teaching them that there is a bigger picture It's teach, and it's teaching them to consider the bigger picture, not just where the wheels meet the pavement. And so I agree with that 100%. Very accurate. Alan, you got any thoughts? Uh, nothing to add there. I agree with everything they said. Yeah. I, now, I do have a, <clears throat> a quick thought on this one is that, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, seeking the people that you want to be around. And, and we started talking about the orchestra and all these other things. And I started to re- think back on my career. And I was like, some of the mistakes that I made right off the bat was that I really wanted to be... I wanted to be the leader and then I expected the leadership skills to like be taught to me as when I was already in the leadership position rather than learning the leadership skills and then elevating to that position in general. And I started thinking about how do you build, you know, how would you build your orchestra? What would you do in order to build your orchestra? Well, you would start picking out your first chairs, right? And who's going to be in the lead positions to do those leadership things throughout the thing but you still need your second and you still need your third chairs. You still need depth of experience, not, but if you were to try to fill all of those chairs with first chairs, then you'd start people, egos would start smashing together. If you know what I mean? Right. So I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on how, how would you build your own orchestra? How would you go about taking every day and building your own orchestra? Alan, might come to you first. What do you think? Well, uh, I guess, you know, the 160th is a good example of of this, right? So all of the pilots, to get into the 160th, you have to have a certain level of experience and flight hours and um, a, a certain psychological profile and, a, and attitude. But everybody's got that, but you have to have the different levels, like you said, you know, the first chair, right? So we had levels of pilot. So the conventional army just has pilot and co-pilot. In the 160th, you have a basic mission qualified pilot, which is really a co-pilot. You have a basic mission mission qualified pilot in command, and they could do uh, basic missions. Um, They could not work with our, what we call the customers, our supported unit. They uh, could work on internal missions. They could fly cross country. They could go to and from places, and they get experience being in charge of that aircraft. And then you go to the next level, which is fully mission qualified, and that's a pilot in command that can um, carry, you know, our tier one assaulters, right? And the other guys can do it as a co-pilot, but they can't do it responsible for the airframe. And then in charge of all of the aircraft is what's called a flight lead. And the flight lead, it takes years to get to that position. And he is the alpha male of the, or the alpha of the, of the group. And there is no doubt you know, because the 160th is an organization that it isn't just rank based. So you could be a lower, lower rank, but yet be in a higher position of authority in conducting missions. So it's, it really, that 
that symphony construct actually works out pretty good. You know, you got to pick those first chairs and the, in the, in the leader, you know, the conductor, and then everybody else is in more of a supporting role and they're going to try to get into the, you know, they're going to want to be in the first chair. So they will work at it. They'll practice. They'll do whatever they got to do to get over there. Mm-hmm. Seb, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I do. I like that. Um, you know, the first chairs, what's really good with that, and for me in my field, for example, a lot of those first chairs were taken by people and in their specific sliver of, of capabilities were much better than me at very specific things. And so if that's the case, now you have to start thinking about how many people am I leading and how many people am I capable of leading? And we know the answer to be between three and five. That's about what you can lead directly. And they have three and five and the other five has three, you know, and that's kind of the concept of decentralized command. And so for me, one of the things I would do is not only not only uh, empower those first chairs to to make some strategic moves in a direction of the mission, uh, you know, obviously being very clear on the stated outcome, but also to have them build their team in 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 the way that they felt would best benefit whatever sliver of work they were given or whatever task they were given and so it starts yes i'm overseeing the culture and the development of same but really if you have the right people in the right chairs they should be putting the right people under under them that will serve you know the mission and so you have to have the sort of um you have to be trusting enough and ego-free enough to, to let go of that control and, and really to see that come to fruition. And again, it's, it's, it's super important that the, the, you know, the, the end goal and the mission and the outcome and the mission statement and everything, all of those parameters are, are discussed so, so clearly that the person has zero doubt on, on what, is, what is expected of them and at which level they're expected to perform it. But also entrusting them with making sure that the job is done is 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 a an, an amazingly sort of um, it it makes people feel valued and want to be a part of the process and do not want to disappoint you on account of the, they've already had your trust. So I think that's an important piece. Interesting. Would you say that then you would want your like if you were the or you're the conductor of your own orchestra as you are in life you know would you want your first chairs then picking their second and thirds in that is that what you're kind of getting at well it it it, it kind of depends but yes i mean in generally speaking if if you if you give somebody responsibility with no power you might as well take the responsibility back so it's for me it's always been important if i responsibilize somebody and i acknowledge that, that person is in the first chair role for a reason th- then if there is a way to get them to you know find and 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 train and select or whatever the case may be and it's not to say that i'm completely disconnected from the process i can be there and have a veto so to speak you know and we can have a conversation but really trusting them and empowering them with making the team the way they need it in a specific task sort of um a sliver of uh, of tasking then then absolutely as long as i keep the bigger picture in mind and i keep reminding you know everybody about the bigger picture and what are some of the key things that they need to consider but other than that let them do the work man yeah alan i have a question for you specifically on this is that did you get to pick your own teams like that when you were talking your like flight crew did you ever did you get to select your own teams or was it more of just like here you go yeah sometimes i sometimes i did and sometimes i didn't the times that I didn't uh, usually were kind of aggravating, and they would be 
over periods of time, uh, say in Afghanistan over Christmas, right? You know, uh, what they would do is uh, bring staff aviators. So guys who weren't necessarily in the line every day, they've moved across the street into, you know, staff jobs and they'd bring them over to, you know, to augment. So the other guys could be home with their families because they've been gone more. And though those are one sixtieth aviators, they aren't necessarily the most proficient nor the mo- the best, mm. you know, at, you know, the war fighting. And so this is what I was talking about expectations. You know, sometimes I'd have to talk to the assaulters and say, Hey, look, this isn't my A team. You know, this is the B or the C team. So, you know, maybe we don't land next to the building to the X. Maybe we do an offset infill, you know, mm. you know, three or four kilometers away and something a little less complicated. Um, and other times, I would have 100% uh, the capability to pick my teams. You know, we did a, a, a mission in um, uh, Yemen, and we only had uh, like three C-17s, and I could I could put the aircraft in there, and I could bring like 21 people, and that's not enough to bring everybody I would want to bring. So what I had to do was select um, skills and chemistry. So for example, there might be one guy who's He's a good pilot, but I wouldn't necessarily pick him except, boy, he's good with computer networking. And we'd have to, all our laptops had to be connected together so that you could collaborate and, you know, uh, and be more efficient in your planning. So it's like, I got to have a computer guy. He's adequate as a co-pilot. He's not a guy I would have picked ahead of time, but he's not bad, but he's got a skill, right? And so it's one of those things that, that talent management I talked about earlier. If you can, you know, there was a, uh, you, you might appreciate this, you know, the 1980 Olympic hockey team for the U.S. The uh, the coach that picked that team did not select the best players. He picked the best players that worked together. Right? Mm-hmm. There was the chemistry that he was working for. And he almost got fired by all the supporters because they're like, "You, why didn't you take this guy or this guy or this guy? They're better than these other guys. And he said, yeah, but, you know, they don't fit with the plan that I've got, you know. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Sean, you got any thoughts on? Picking the chairs. Yeah, uh, right from the get-go, I was torn right down the middle between I want the A team or I want the D team. And uh, by that, I mean, like, it's fun to be able to choose the amazing team and put it together and watch it kick that butt um, uh, orchestrally. Uh, However, I also appreciate when someone just rolls up with a bus and says, all right, everyone get off and then I've got to sort it out. Uh, I love both challenges, man. They're they're both equally challenging, uh, particularly when the bus, uh, everyone's getting off and their shoelaces are untied. I mean, it's fun to be able to create something with people who are unaware of what they're capable of. And then it's my job to help them understand that over a period of time in order to fit it into the mission construct that is being given to me, which might be something as simple as, can you just try to get them into the arena and get them to sit down and be quiet? Maybe it's that, but maybe it's turn them into an orchestra. So uh, I do appreciate both, both edges of the extreme of highly competent to incompetent and that's a really important point i think that i don't want to overlook that you get what you get sometimes you don't get to pick 
And if, if you're getting what you get, you've got to be prepared to turn it into something awesome. And the only way you can turn something that is mediocre into awesome is you work with it a lot. So if you're always being given the cherry on the cake to go play with the cherry, here's the cherry, 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 cherry. How do you ever learn how to play with the pits in the cherry? You know what I mean? It's kind of hilarious. I'm going to come to you in a second. I just had this picture of Alan standing in front of all of 160th and being like, all right, Jim. And he's like, yes, and runs over, you know, like, like we used to do on the, the school field. Uh, it's pretty close to that. In dodgeball? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I just, I had this picture of the entire regiment just standing there like, wait, is he going to pick me? He's going to, yeah, I get to run over. Uh, what, what were you going to say, Seb? Oh, no, I was just, I was just going to jump on the Sean uh, bandwagon, yep. the, the bandwagon there with the, because I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, 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 and I'm glad he brought this up because I probably would have wrapped up without, you know, talking about this, which is a, a, an integral part of life. Sometimes you don't get to pick. And when you don't get to pick, then the challenge becomes how do I optimize the, the results of this particular team on account of, you know, what I have? And how do we how do we make that happen? And it 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 I feel like it comes down to treating people to their level to the level of their potential instead of to the level of where they're at now necessarily. And so I, I always like to do this. If I have if I have people coming in that are, you know, not nearly as seasoned or tested or experienced or whatever the case may be, I will I will generally have a, a good sense of what the potential might be there. You know, after knowing them for a while and having had that that ability to observe and uh and then task him appropriately and 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 responsibilize them appropriately as well so that you may make that happen now it, it's really easy you you know to see the difference you'll see a, an entire team that's consistently sick or or people are not showing up or when people are showing up you know the work is shoddy or whatever the case may be you change a leader and 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 a leader that has the ability to do that and to rally him up and you can take a substandard unit and make them you know, above standard, even, even if you don't have the tier one personnel, it's, it's, it's actually very achievable provided that you have the right leader, the right leaders in the position. Mm -hmm. Alan, you got any thoughts on that? Nope. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Perfect. Nice. Um, um, there, I, sorry, there is yeah, one more on. point to that because, um, I think that what we're talking about is a bit academic now in the sense of it's good to play with uh, high performers and it's good to play with low performers. But uh, either way, it's still play. I need to have fun. Sean. Sean needs to have fun in the moment, in the role that he's being given. If, if someone gives me the best people in the world and says, be the conductor, I've got to figure out a way to make it fun for Sean. And same, same, when I'm standing in front of that bus and they're all getting off with their untied shoelaces and someone says, you're in charge of that, it's my job now to find a way to make it fun. So I think that if you understand both extremes and you can find a way to enjoy each position, then absolutely you can enjoy all of the other slices in between. If you can figure this out and you can figure that out, the rest will take care of itself. If you put yourself in those positions, figure them out, it becomes pretty easy. Um, I, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, this is easily applicable to life right it's not just about the teams it's not just about the sore it's not just about a concert you're not like this is you are the conductor of your life right and so i'm wondering if when you build your your uh, your symphony where your 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 orchestra my apologies um when you build that orchestra i i'm personally i'm, I'm picking like 
my first chairs are my family, right? This is this is my core group of people that are going to be there. I can depend on them 100%. This is the way to do it. And then, you know, you start to expand into your second, your third chairs and so on and so forth. But what well, I guess the question that I'm trying to get across is how would you apply this into your everyday? I, I'm applying it in that sense, but how would you apply it into your everyday life? This, this same concept of being able to utilize what is in front of you. Alan, what do you think? Um, I think that's just got to be your, your style of life, how you live life. And uh, this is that whole part I said in the beginning, good attitude, good work ethic. Mm. It just applies. If you can uh, take the kids with their shoes untied versus the, the guys with the, you know, high and tights and you can make them get the same results. That's great. If not, you know, you do your best and enjoy it. I mean, I, I've enjoyed almost, you know, people ask me all the time, the, you know, here in America, it's always, uh, you know, thank you for your service. And I'm like, I was a volunteer. Thank you. But uh, I enjoyed almost all of it. You know, I mean, and, and I mean that sincerely. So if you can enjoy what you do, I think it almost uh, takes care of itself. Just keep doing what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Seb, what do you think? Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I, st- I stick to the old, you know, surround yourself with savages if I can, you know, I just, <laughs> and that includes, you know, therapist or anybody, you know, like that enters the circle, so to speak. And so I'm very, very selective, but it wasn't always so, um, you know, this seems to be something that transpired after my forties kind of deal, you know, when, when, when the forties kicked in, but before that I wasn't nearly as diligent in, in, in doing that. But I do believe there is extreme value in doing in doing this. There's also extreme value in understanding that my own my own uh, sort of self-imposed standards isn't necessarily achievable for 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 say everybody. And so we need to recognize when somebody has value that potentially, uh, or as uh, Alan alluded to, manage my own expectations in the context of in the context of life, especially. Absolutely, Sean. Any thoughts on that? I'm nowadays I'm less concerned about first, second or third C. In fact, I'm not really concerned about anything. But what I do appreciate is when someone points towards the guy with the big drum and says, build an orchestra around that guy or whatever. Mm. I mean, sometimes life just hands you the big drum and says, make it work. And uh, you've got to make that guy work. And so you've got to build a team around it and you've got to find a way to have fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we are just about at time. I mean, those do kind of work as final thoughts, but I figured I'd go around one more time and just see if there's anything else, uh, any final thoughts on anything we've gone over so far. Seb, I'm going to start with you, and then we'll go around. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. It's. it seems as though we use the leadership lens on this one just organically, and that's totally fine because it's very beneficial in leaders in in, in, in the world. I mean, if you take ownership of your life, you will be a leader anyways, whether you're in an official leadership position or not. But I think it's important to realize that sometimes, you know, the leader is the person that doesn't set the right culture and you're under there. And how do you optimize your team's performance if the person that's supposed to be enabling that doesn't do that? You know, and, and I've experienced that lots before. And I think that's really important. It's important to have the ability to learn 
and to take the goods from the bad leaders and to to s sort of mental mark the things that you do not want to repeat as a leader and 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 so using that as a learning opportunity for you in in perhaps drawing the roadmap to your own leadership style down the line and so having the ability to deal with somebody that's perhaps performing a little bit below your standard in a certain in a certain sense um also applies to the leaders so you can spend your time you know bitching about the leaders or having you know jumping on a bandwagon with everybody and 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 in a very uh, sort of i, I guess self-destructing way or you can have a, a, a much more positive attitude a more a much more positive outlook that's growth oriented and that you're going to do the best with the, what you are given and how are you going to make that happen and retake the ownership on that that's a very good piece to develop as a leader absolutely alan any final thoughts on anything we've gone over yeah um remember i told you that in the 160th we had these different levels of of leadership and the, the top tier was the flight lead or the flight leader. And <clears throat> you may have five or six flight leads on a deployment, you know, depending on how many aircraft are there. Uh, and what I was taught when I very, when I, when I first got signed off as a flight lead, the guy that, you know, evaluated me said one word, one lesson here. And that is uh, or a word of advice really is never give up lead. <laughs> you know? So if you're in a flight, with other flight leads and there's an opportunity to let somebody take the lead, you know, just cause it's easier to move the aircraft around or something. Uh, he said, don't do it cause you won't like how they do it. Right. And even though the guy is qualified, he's certified, he's probably doing the right thing. It's not the way you would do it. And so in any job where, you know, I'd say, uh, if you if you want to be the leader, if you want it done a certain way, then take the lead and, and, you know, supervise it your way, do it your way, whatever you're going to do. But, uh, you know, don't bitch about somebody else in the lead position, how they're doing it. You know, if you don't like it, step up. I like it. I like it, Sean. Any final thoughts? I like that. Uh, I think uh, the what I took away from that is uh, never give away the lead. Try to be the lead, but always be surrounded by leads. Mm. That's a good way to put it. Nice little sum up. I like it. Well, <clears throat> first off. I do really appreciate the conversation. This has been great, Alan, Seb, Sean, fantastic. I do apologize. It took me like 20 minutes to get my brain straight. So I do appreciate <laughs> your guys' patience on that one. Uh, it, it's, been, uh, it's been a fun day. Now, this is uh, consistently, I think we've hit this basically every day on this in terms of playing the game, is that it's up to you to play the game. It, like no one else. It, you can't pawn it off on somebody else. You can't say it's because of that leadership or this or that and the other thing. It's up to you. So learn how to play the game. And then every day, build upon it. And once you do that, you can grow into the person that you're meant to be. And you can do that with us every day here on The Collective. GMO. GMO. Bye. <laughs>